Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson episode, I don't even know. It's not in front of me, and I didn't get any sleep last night, so we're just going to move on. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any uh, announcements. There are none that I can think of, aside from the the standard one. Uh, in a couple months, in April, I will be at the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando, Florida. Uh, I will be, uh, more than one lesson, we'll have a table there, but then I will also be doing a seminar. The seminar will be called Speaking the Language of Film, which I'm very excited about. Uh, they've, uh, they treated me very well last year, and they are treating me very well this year. So if you are in Florida in general, and I recognize that uh, once, you know, Florida's pretty long, and uh, if you live at the very bottom, uh, it would take several hours to get where you need to go. But you know what? It's worth it for this uh, for this seminar. So if you're in that area, come to, to Orlando, to the International Christian Film Festival, come and say hi to me at my table, and come to my seminar. So I think that is about it. So I will go ahead and welcome in this week's co-host. It's Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi, Tyler. How you doing? I'm doing well. All right. Glad to hear it. Orlando, come for Epcot. Stay for Tyler Smith. I I like to think it's the opposite. Also, nobody goes there for Epcot. Come on. Animal Kingdom? That one's okay. Disney World. Here's what's interesting. Yeah, Disney World in general. Just mm-hmm. You got to look at it all as one thing. Uh, Jen and I were there last year. Um, and Dis- I think we all have an idea of Disney World in our head that it, it's better than Disneyland because it's bigger. That there's just more to do. Well, actually... While there are some things that Disney World offers that Disneyland does not, for the most part, a lot of the rides that you'll find in Disneyland are just strewn about Hmm. between Animal Kingdom and Epcot Center and Hollywood Studios and the Magic Kingdom. Right. But And then there are also some uh, rides that uh, you will not find at Disneyland. But at the same time, Disney World does not have an Indiana Jones ride. Hmm. That's a big, you know, that's a big mistake. Travesty. Yeah, that's minus. A, that's a great ride. But then what's also interesting is that uh, there are some rides that are better there and some that are better here. Haunted Mansion there is better. Uh, Pirates here is much better. I like the Pirates here. And then um, and then there are, there are some other examples I can't remember. Uh, I think uh, Space Mountain here is uh, much, much better. I love Space Mountain. It's it's marvelous. You, gotta, you and I got to go to Disneyland again. I know it's pricey, but... Uh, Haven't we been a couple of times? Once just us he, and then once with our... Well, I think wasn't my wife at the time, but with Aubrey, I believe so. Jen? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was fun. fun. Yeah, I've never been to Disney World though. It's it's definitely worth going, and I'd suggest staying on the property. I, I realize I haven't sold it very well, but it's just, it's more just cumulatively. It's a fun experience, you know. If you're staying on the property, then you catch your bus, mm-hmm. go where you need to go, and. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a great deal of fun. I, I, a lot of people will crap on Disney world and like, why would you go there when you could go to a place with like real culture, you know, to another country or something like sure. that? Uh, well, I've been to other countries and they're pretty good. Uh, but Disney world is Here's much my better. Question though, are, are both places considered the happiest place on earth? And how does that work? Oh gosh. So Disneyland. Oh, here's, here's the way I see it. Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth. Disney World, since it is, in fact, its own world, is the happiest place in the universe. Or it's the happiest place in itself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
it gets metaphysical there. It is the one. It is the one thing that you can use to define itself. There you go. Oh man, I'm not sure I want to step foot there. It's pretty that. terrifying, actually. I, th- um, I think too much anyway. I'm staying away. So, sorry, everybody. We need to move on. Oops. Um, all right. So it is Oscar season, everybody. Isn't that exciting, Robert? Are you excited? I am not. You're not. I'll Why be not? honest. I mean, I, I I I watch. I have it on. Because I'm interested, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't follow like the politics of what's going on from you know typically like into November all yeah. the way through it. It's like it gets a little tedious for me, and uh, you know I'll these days with Facebook, you know you can't get away from people's right. opinions about it. I have a lot right. of film friends that are Facebook friends, and so you end up knowing a lot even without trying because of Facebook. And um, yeah, so I mean I, I follow it in that regard, but in terms of like rooting for a film over another mm. film, it typically doesn't happen unless there's one really standout film. Yeah, that doesn't come to mind at the moment. But I guess when I think of Oscar season, I, I do think of, I mean, the awards are are perfectly fine, and then these days there tends to be a lot of political stuff around uh, the Oscars themselves. I guess more than anything, it's just it's it's the time of year when everybody is sort of rallying around like the same 12 movies, whether they're good or bad, but in theory, they are good. They are the movies that the Oscars uh, approve of. And so we're all kind of having, aside from summer blockbuster season, um, it's, it's the time of year when everyone I know is talking about, they're all having the same conversations Mm. and that's a thing that I enjoy. Um, and, and then the movies themselves are usually pretty good. Usually right. my favorite movie of the year comes out after October. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is, I believe that's the case here as well. How is that uh, top three standing right now? Right now, my top three and listeners, this is an exclusive because I've hidden my list Ooh. on Letterboxd and then I have not revealed my top 10 on Battleship Pretension yet. But as of right now, my top three is Paddington, Steve Jobs, and the number one is Brooklyn. Wow. Which surprised me. I wasn't expecting that, uh, but it crept its way to number one, and I don't think it's going anywhere. That movie surprised me tremendously. I have yet to see Brooklyn, but I really want to see it. I have seen Paddington because I borrowed your copy, mm-hmm. uh, Blu-ray, and uh, I like the movie a lot. Yeah. I, I would love, um, maybe this is a whole other episode, I'd love to hear why it arrived at such a high hmm. position on a list of favorites. Well, I can tell you for uh, very quickly, mm-hmm. um, and then we can have an in-depth discussion about it uh, in a few minutes, probably, uh, given how prone we are to uh, digressions. Um, I think some of, some of it is just the general tone. Um, anytime a movie can be lazy, where the filmmaker can just basically hit a certain, it's a, all right, if we hit these key plot points, or these key set pieces. If we just hit these, everyone will be happy. We'll make a solid B minus movie. We'll make some money, and then we'll all go home. Paddington could have been that. There's name recognition already, uh, especially uh, in England, where it did very well. Uh, there's name recognition. It's like, all right, a, a bear moves in with a family. Okay, got it. Let's basically just turn this into Beethoven with a bear, and we're right. good. Um, the film could have been lazy. But it, I think it never was. I think it was often very funny. Um, and I think the jokes were earned, even silly jokes. 
maybe especially silly jokes like uh, Nicole Kidman's villain who loves just killing and stuffing animals and she just has a bunch of animal heads on her wall and then when she walks through the door you see that the rest of the animals are sticking out the other side of the wall Mm -hmm. that is an obvious silly joke but still one that I wasn't expecting and one that I laughed at quite a bit Um, okay so not only is it amusing but also there's just such a there's such a vibrance to it there's such a spark of life it is not I feel like everybody involved, from the actors to the writer uh, to the director, everybody was excited to be making this movie. Mm. Um, And I think where the film, where it won me over and up until I saw Steve Jobs and then Brooklyn, um, it was my favorite movie of the year. I think what put me over and sort of made it official was Jim Broadbent talking about his experiences and he talks about it mm-hmm. I remember this. while there is a little model train and he talks about his experience being an immigrant to another country and being put on a train. And so they use, so the filmmaker uses the model train to visualize this story in Jim Broadbent's life. They could have done a flashback. They could have just focused on Jim Broadbent's face and it still probably would have been pretty, right. uh, pretty interesting. But by choosing to do what they did and just perpetually going about things a different way and then doing it with a great deal of life and creativity uh, while never losing heart either. I feel like it is also a very touching film. Uh, it's just, it was such a pleasant surprise. To me, it is it is very much, it's very similar to, what was his name, Chris Noonan? Uh, his film Babe, which came out in 1995. I, com- I think the two are very similar, not just because they're about, you know, talking animals, living amongst humans. Um, but just the, this, the strangeness of a world where that can happen, um, can actually allow a filmmaker a great deal of creative freedom for them to really experiment and have a lot of fun. And I think babe does that. I think babe big in the city certainly does that. And I think Paddington kind of follows along and, 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 uh, sort of pays off that tradition as well. So I buy all that. Yeah. So it's just a, and by this thing, by the time I saw it, it, it already had gotten good reviews. So it's not like I went in with low expectations and it defied them. I went in expecting a lot and it actually was more than I even expected. So yeah, I, 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 I have no expectation that anybody else would ever put it on their top 10. But I do, I just love it so, so much. I suspect, and <clears throat> this would be part of a longer conversation, so you don't have to answer now. Okay. Um, in fact, you shouldn't. But I suspect that there's something even deeper than that that draws you to it. Because it still seems, I mean, there's a lot of movies that, you know, try harder, harder mm-hmm. than they need to because of star power, director power, whatever it is, um, and are good because of it and have a spark of life because it, it's clear that everyone's enjoying mm-hmm. making it. You know, there could be half a dozen of those movies, if not more, mm-hmm. in any given year. Um, but why Paddington? So, I, I, I'm, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking, is it is that maybe more to do with, like, maybe the family element or well, the nostalgia yeah, I element? Or I mentioned the, the heart to it. And I definitely think that um, there are a couple of moments in the film where I, I, I tear up a little bit. I don't straight up cry, but I, I kind of weld up. Um, because I feel like the the family, each member of the family, has their own little arc in regards to Paddington. Um, one thing, okay, 
Oh boy. Okay. We're talking about room, everybody, by the way. <laughs> um, so years ago, Josh and I reviewed um, The Blind Side, mm-hmm. a movie that I did not care for. And there's a line that it's def- it's a definite trailer line in which someone says, you're changing that boy's life. And she's like, no, he's changing mine. Ah, uh, right. And I remember in seeing it, it's like, uh, you've given no evidence of that. Hmm. I don't see how he's changing your life at all. You're exactly the same. You have no arc. So you are changing his life for the better and good for you. Uh, he has changed your life not at all, except for logistically because he lives with you now. Um, and so... Paddington is a situation where this family takes this bear in and actually he does way more good for them than they do for him Hmm. Um, because he forces them outside of their comfort zone. And these are people that are just very comfortable. Um, But then also specifically the arc of um, what's his name? Oh, shoot. Hugh Bonneville. Yes. Hugh Bonneville's character. uh, His arc is one that I think is very interesting and that first off, we see that delightful sequence when he and his wife, he and his pregnant wife pull up to the hospital on their motorcycle and there's like, all right, here we go. And everything. And they're like this freewheeling 1960s couple. And then they go into the hospital and when they come out, they're very straight laced and very safe and that sort of thing. And I feel like a lot of people can probably relate to that. I think a lot of adults can relate to that. I don't think that's, that's not a joke for kids, Mm. not to imply that it's inappropriate, but like they can't relate to that. Um, and so, but what I like is that when the, as the character starts to change, it's not that he just becomes a different person. It's that he's able to tap into something inside him that was there the whole time, but he, he probably forgot about. Um, and so I feel like that's kind of the, the heart that really pulled me in because you're right. Yeah. There are plenty of movies that are very creative and I will really enjoy them and they might even make my top 10, but I think for something to really break through (laughs) and get into my number one spot, there needs to be something deeper going on, uh, emotionally, intellectually, or philosophically. Well, it is a very sweet movie. It certainly is. And smart. And creative. Uh, listeners, I guess we just did a sort of mini episode within this episode about Paddington. So if you haven't seen it, seek it out. Uh, we instead are talking about Lenny Abramson's Room, which is nominated for a number of Oscars. That's why uh, I started talking about Oscar, uh, Oscar films. Uh, it is nominated currently for Best Picture, Director, Actress, and Adapted Screenplay. It is very likely to win Best Actress, and I really hope it does because uh, Brie Larson is who I have in my fantasy Oscar draft. Ah. Um, I also have Adapted Screenplay, but I think that's going to go somewhere else. Which uh, I think it's probably going to go to the big short. Um, yeah, I like that movie quite a bit. I wish I liked it more. I do like it, um, but I don't like it as much as I like Room. Um, and also, I don't have it in my fantasy Oscar draft for adapted screenplay. More important. Um, so, my first association with, with Room was the book, which I had not read, but my wife did. And she w- had told me about the the story a little bit. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that sounds really fascinating and often devastating and it sounded like a really great book and then not long after that because she didn't read it when it first came out she read it i think like maybe a year ago um and not long after that i saw the announcement that they were making a movie of it uh, that the script was going to be written by the author of the book um 
and that Brie Larson was going to be playing the lead. And I was mostly unfamiliar with Brie Larson, which I think, and I think a lot of people are, I think a lot of people don't really know. She was in short term 12. Um, and I think some people know who she is from that, but not a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I, and I felt like that's a strong idea that you cast somebody who is not really well known and also not, I, I think Brie Larson is a very attractive person, but she's not movie star. She's not conventional movie star, bland, attractive. Mm-hmm. And she has the type of look that can, you know, if you make her up one way, and I don't mean, I'm sorry to be told, I don't like to comment on people's looks, but I, it just is from a casting decision. Um, she has the type of look that you could dress her up and she would be, she would look glamorous and beautiful. But if you put her like in a t-shirt and do and make her hair kind of messy she could look like uh, just an average she definitely could fit this character right um because i feel like this person needs to be a someone that we believe could actually exist and i feel like if you went with a conventional movie star conventional both in looks but also in just general demeanor um i feel like i wouldn't have bought the the reality um an example of this is uh time out of mind which is a movie directed by uh uh oren moverman and starring richard Gere as a homeless person um the film got a fair amount of press because he actually like did some method work and dressed up like a homeless guy and actually went out and asked people for change and at no point did anybody say hey wait a second you're richard Gere." um but in watching it, his perform he's totally committed and good for him. I think Richard Gere is a very underrated actor, but he just has a look to him that's like sorry. If only this if only if if only this uh homeless guy could uh just find an agent, right. which would probably be pretty easy because he's a good looking homeless guy. Um and Brie Larson just has a quality to her, and I feel like I'm 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 being insulting to her. I it, she's a very great actress. I think I get your point. And, and I think the choice to cast her as opposed to somebody who's more of a name mm-hmm. and more recognizable, I think, is key to the film's success. Um, so that was those were my first thoughts about the film. I was reluctant to see it because I thought it was going to be devastating, and yes. indeed it often is. Um, but I was also very glad that I saw it. I believe it is... It might be my number four or five of the year. I don't have my list in front of me, but it's a film that I found very effective for a number of reasons, and we can get into it more in a moment. Uh, But yeah, I really, I'm not sure if I'd say I love the movie, but I think I probably do. Um, At the very least, I really, really like it. Where's your reluctance in saying you love it? Um... I'm not, I'm not really sure. There's a couple moments here and there that just feel a little forced to me and I'll, I'll bring them up when we get to them. Um, but at the same time, looking at it overall, and also there are enough moments that are so amazing that they definitely, uh, more than cancel out the ones that don't really hit me right. Um, so yeah, I'd go so far as say that I love the film now that I think about it. Uh, what is your what was your general reaction to the movie? Um, <clears throat> I guess like most movies, um, or most people as they approach movies, the the first thing is the the trailer. I just I randomly saw the trailer on Apple trailers, and <clears throat> I happened to be in the living room uh, with my wife, and I saw this trailer, and I, 
you can divine from the trailer essentially what it's about. You know, woman trapped in shed with her son, mm-hmm. being kept there by evil man. Kid gets out, and then there's sort of the aftermath of like the woman also escaping and then dealing with, you know, reentering the world and mm-hmm. how how you, how do you do that after that sort of experience? And so you can divine all that. And I thought as I was watching the trailer. I thought this would. This seems like something that my wife would in, would a- appreciate or relate to. Um, forgetting for that moment that I would relate to it as well, given my own history. <laughs> um, but so I, 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 you know, put the the YouTube clip back to the beginning, and I scooted over to her, and I said, "Hey, this movie looks like it could be good." And my impression of the of the of the movie based on the trailer was that it was going to be this ethereal sort of poetic mm-hmm. kind of thing. Where it was all about imagery, uh, almost airing more toward the, um, oh, what's that Shane Ruth movie? Uh, Upstream Color. Color. Something like that, where yeah. it's a, a tone poem or something like that. Um, and she was instantly uh, wanting to see this movie because of the theme. Mm-hmm. And so we you know, figured out when to see it. It was actually that day, now that I think I hadn't remembered that, but it was that day that we got tickets, went to see it. And what I encountered was what I didn't expect, which was based on the trailer, which was something a lot more uh, tactile and a lot more earthbound for, for lack of another phrase. Yeah. It's like you, it's more of a, you are there kind of thing than a, here's how you feel about that thing. And let's meet it out in some sort of, uh, you know, visual scheme yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I, I was, I was floored by it in the sense that what I got was so much more real and indeed, the theme was something that I connected with so deeply from my own family history that, uh, you, I mean, you, a person like me or Aubrey or virtually anyone who has any sort of uh, a dark past because of family issues or any of that kind of thing, I don't think anyone like that can walk away from this movie and not be affected in some way, whether they love the movie in terms of uh, uh, filmmaking capacity or the writing or mm. dialogue or, or just scenes. Just the theme of the movie is so uh, brutally real. Um, the first hour where you're where you're stuck in the room with them, and the second hour where you're working out what it's like to be back on the outside. All of it is so uh, tied into things that are right at the surface of a lot of the way I feel about my own life, and mm. Aubrey feels about her own life. And so, yeah, that was my experience with the movie was. It's almost like a movie that's for you if you feel at all like that character. It's yeah. And there are elements that, that do kind of tie in with that, that trailer in that it is beautiful, you know, yeah. at times. And it does feel kind of ethereal in that moment when, uh, spoilers, you know, when the boy does get out uh, yeah. first and he's experiencing the world for the very, very first time, it feels like a dream. That is such a, well, I'd say, I, I'm, I'm, we'll unpack that part a little bit more. Uh, sorry, continue. No, that's that's it. That that was my my first experience, or my first feelings, or my experience with the movie was. Okay. Here's a movie that I can connect with, and yeah. it it does it in such a way that it, it feels so honest um, with regard to those emotions. Uh, if there are, we'll get into this as well, but there are elements in the movie from a filmmaking perspective or from a writing perspective that feels like it's okay. It's a lot of things kind of shoehorned in, shoehorned in, yeah. in order to make this point, but the point is so. Uh, beautifully uh, 
it's it's just a through line that's through the whole movie that it's so well done. It's mm-hmm. just like it sticks to it. And anything else they hang off of it, like the the interview that they do about halfway through. Yeah. And all these things feel a little bit kind of weird given the tone of the rest of the movie. <clears throat> but that almost doesn't matter because yeah. it's it's a beautifully uh, imagined and written uh, exploration of those kind of feelings coming out of that kind of experience in life. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting that you mentioned the idea that you thought it was going to be much more ethereal because uh, that's something that uh, it didn't occur to me until now uh, until you saying that that I think I thought that as well. I, I just assumed that it's such an odd circumstance that how could it not be sort of intangible and maybe even a bit surreal yeah. where it's almost like where room is more of a state of mind than a real place. Right. It plays up the, the trailer definitely plays up kind of a magical aspect yeah. or magical realism sort of yeah. take on what you don't get, which is much more tactile and real. Yeah. And do you think, and it works so well that, you know, my, my expectations basically get pushed aside, but it does sort of make me wonder like, how would this have worked if the film had been more committed to sort of putting us in the mindset of the, not even just the mindset, but also just seeing the world through the eyes of these characters, um, where it is more surreal and strange and cut off and just so unlike the, the real experiences of the audience. Um, I feel like there's, there's, there's so many different movies to be made from this story. Um, And maybe, and now that you mention it, that maybe that's one of the things that keeps me, that that gives me pause and and makes me hesitate a little bit is that it seems like such a, such a straightforward way of telling the story. And while, while all of that is great, part of me just felt like, Oh, I just, you could do more with it. It it reminds Mm. me uh, sort of like uh, the road. Um, the, I did not see that. It's it's a very good movie. Uh, I have not read the book, but to hear people talk about the book, it is this amazing. I mean, it's Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. so it's this you know very. It's, we'll go back to the word I did read ethereal. The book. Oh, you did read the book. Okay, I read the book, but did not see the movie. Okay, and just but to you know to hear people talk about it, it's like it's this deeply emotional mm-hmm. uh, experience where yes, things happen, but. It's so much more than that. And then the movie comes along and the movie is just a, a bunch of stuff that happens. And it's good and it's effective, but based on what it could have been, I mean, it winds up just being, okay, well, we've seen post-apocalyptic movies before and here's another one. Well, we could diverge easily into the conversation about, well, you know, people that say, oh, the book was so much better. Mm-hmm. And the, the conversation always hits a dead, dead end for me or a wall for me because it's like, well, a book is always going to be better. I mean, that's not always the case. Godfather right. is not as good as Godfather the movie. Right. Jaws is not as good as exactly. Uh, there's those, those kind of pulp movies or pulp books that become movies that are the movie is handled by someone who has a vision yeah. broader than the author of the original book. But most books uh, can get inside the head of a character better yeah. uh, than a movie can. And if it's a movie like this, where you kind of need to be inside mm-hmm. the head, or like the road, where the story it does feel like something you may have seen a hundred times before. Yeah. Um, that it, it, it is enhanced by being inside of the character's head. Well, a book is going to do that much more mm-hmm. uh, effectively than a movie is every single time. Yeah. Um, but this movie, uh, I was going to say that it, while it does uh, remain, as I keep saying, t- sort of tactile and real, 
uh, throughout. There are these moments of sort of ethereal, dreamlike feelings. Yeah. And I think that is uh, speaks to the fact that it's almost like a, a like, like it must have been a a, a a maxim or a mantra in the in the filmmaker's head. It's like let's keep this in both characters' perspectives. Yeah. Uh, it's very much the boys' movie, Absolutely. and it's very much the moms' movie, and yeah. it. Sometimes it's more one or the other. Sometimes it's definitely both of them. The first half of the movie is both of them, clearly. Yeah. Um, beyond the first half of the movie, uh, the halfway point, it's both of their movies. And they you get both perspectives so easily. So, it, uh, obviously, at times, it's going to seem more... I don't, I don't want to say it becomes like a dream world or anything. like. It's not like a Wes Anderson movie yeah. or something like that, suddenly. But it, but it does it does very skillfully go back and forth from between the mom's perspective and the kid's perspective in terms of the feelings that are being felt. No, yeah, no question about it. Yeah. When, when you mentioned that, uh, especially once they get out scenes that are primarily about the boy, Jack are treated with caution, hmm. but excitement and, a definite wariness, but also an optimism, which is exactly how that kid would be feeling, which is I'm, st- I'm definitely out of my element. Yeah. But I think that's okay. And look at all these things. Isn't this amazing? Right. And yes, things could still, I still don't trust everything, but I'm getting there. Whereas from her perspective, I mean, her scenes, it's so fascinating to me that you know, she is out of her situation and yet her life doesn't seem much better. Mm-hmm. Now she's certainly not being uh, sexually assaulted on a regular basis. So that's a big win. Um, but she doesn't, she still feels lonely. Mm-hmm. She still feels um, disconnected from the people around her, except that they're there before she was literally disconnected from everyone around her. Um, but at least that made sense. Now she still feels that and doesn't understand why she still feels that. She should be happy, but she's not. She laments what was taken from her, not just, you know, physically or emotionally, but just her time was taken from her, you know? And there's a, a real mournful quality to her scenes where she is still obviously glad to be gone from her previous circumstance, but I wouldn't say she's happy to be gone. Um, and so the fact that, that the film can go back and forth between those two tones without ever feeling jarring, mm-hmm. um, speaks to the skill of the filmmaker, but all, both in those moments, but also the skill of the storytelling, because the first half did such a good job of creating both characters that when we have a scene with Jack or a scene with his mother, um, that the characters are so vivid already that by simply latching on to what they might be feeling, Mm -hmm. it just feels natural. It doesn't feel jarring because this is, we know these characters well enough. Right. You know, like when, when, um, when you're talking to a friend, you might be in a good mood before you talk to them, but then you see that they're in a certain headspace and you just know it. And it's not like, it's not like a jarring shift in tone in your life because you don't think in those terms. It's, well, I'm with this person now, and so I know this person well enough that now this is the mood that I'm in. Mm. And you don't lament that you're not in the mood you were in. It's just, this is how things are. It's an extension of the character. Right. And I think those two characters are wonderfully written and 
beautifully uh, portrayed mm-hmm. by Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay. Yeah, all of the things you said about uh, like focusing on the characters and knowing kind of how they would feel even without them having to say something because mm-hmm. you know them from having been established so well. It's all in the writing. It is absolutely yeah. all in the writing. It's a beautiful script. But much like you were saying about the casting earlier, it's like it would not have come off as well had it not been those two actors. Yeah. They are both so incredibly good. And I have to I have to kind of give the edge to the kid, I'll be honest. Oh, no question. I mean, cause maybe it's because it's so rare that a kid is believable in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they can even be believable to a certain degree in certain kinds of scenes, and they still come off as like, oh, he's a kid in, in a movie. Yeah. But sometimes there's a movie that has a, a kid a kid actor or a kid character uh, that is one of the main focuses of the movie, and you forget that it's an actor playing this part. It's yeah. like this kid is really feeling these emotions. This kid is really lost. This kid has really actually never seen a dog in his life. Yeah. And you believe it, but you're not believing it like stepping back and going, oh, as a viewer, I believe that this actor is really having an effect on me. It's it's like you're just so lost in this moment, in this movie. And that's because the kid is so good. Yeah. It's an amazing wor- it, work of acting art in this yeah. movie. And I will say, because I'm giving all kinds of stuff away, here's a little preview of the BPs, which won't be up for like two more weeks. So, and no, no winners have been announced or anything like that. But I will say, best actor... Goes to Jacob Tremblay. Is that right? That is correct. Wow. Just barely edging out Leonardo DiCaprio and Michael Fassbender. Wow. But in fact, he did. And um, Well, I, he deserves it. He does. And, and what's more, and he does deserve best lead actor, not best supporting actor as he has gotten from certain groups because, well, he's a young kid, certainly he couldn't be the lead. Which bothers me to no end. Well, it's the whole Jules Vincent attitude. thing that I, I always go back to that. Like, why yeah. is why is Sam Jackson a supporting actor in this movie? And why is yeah? Be- I, and that one at least makes a bit more sense to me because the arc. Because Vincent Actually, at least has that entire other story with hmm. Mia Wallace. Okay. So there's a, at least that. Hmm. But no, the one that makes no sense is Training Day, where oh, you're right. Denzel yeah. Washington. One best lead actor, Ethan Hawke nominated for supporting actor. Ethan Hawke is on screen longer and is, and absolutely has a character arc. He yeah. is the lead. Yeah. Uh, but he's not the bigger star. Yeah, that's streaming, by the way, uh, recently on, on Netflix. And I, I intend to see it again. I haven't seen it in years. Training Day? Yeah. It's great. It's really good. I love it. Um, and yeah, so the thing that got me about Jacob Tremblay is that he has to do so much. The stuff that his character has experienced is unlike what the vast majority of children have experienced. Um, and, and so he has to play that, but not overplay it because he's still a kid and his mother has done such a good job of shielding him from the cold, hard reality of the situation that he doesn't know any better. So he's still going to react to things as though he were a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, um, playing with toys, going to the bathroom, eating food. Like, it's all the same. It just happens to be in one room. And so I'm fascinated. How did... How did the director do this? How did the director do this? And and not to take anything away from the actor, but I just naturally assume that when a kid is that young, what can they possibly draw on for as far as... The understanding certain narrative and character complexity. I'm always thinking about this, like in movies like Ponette. Have you seen Ponette? I have not. 
It's a foreign film, French, I believe, memory serves. And she's like the daughter of parents who have divorced Mm -hmm. or maybe one has died. Now I can't remember. But the movie is squarely focused on her reaction to this entire event. And that kid is so good. Yeah. You get the feeling that it's almost like Spielberg with the kid in Close Encounters, like toys, you know, how you get, you know, unwrap presents off screen to make the kid do this. Well, how do you make a kid cry? How do you make a kid cry so believably over something? And it just kind of breaks your heart. It's like, yeah, well, just poke him with a pen or poke something. Him, like off screen, there's like a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the kid is just unbelievably good. And I keep thinking about, uh, I'm reading this book called Celebration of Discipline. Mm-hmm. This is way kind of out of nowhere, but um, kind of an older book about what the title says. It's discipline, like a prayer and fasting and all these kind of things because I'm so you know, behind on understanding any of those kind of things thoroughly. But in one little section on prayer, he talks about how he, as a pastor, went over to a house to pray for someone who was sick in the house. And there was mm-hmm. a, a kid that was also there, like a six or seven-year-old kid. And uh, the pastor says, you want to help me pray? We need to pray for whoever this sick person was, who was also in the room. And so, he let the kid lead. And the mm-hmm. kid prays, and the kid, now emboldened by the fact that the preacher has said it's okay for him to pray, yeah. says a prayer in the style of a kid, yeah. meaning he just prays a prayer, and he's a you know, six-year-old kid. And the prayer is so much more honest, and the prayer is so much more real in some way, because the kid doesn't understand theology. Yeah. The, under- the kid has never read Celebration of Discipline yeah. um, to understand better what his prayer might do uh, for this person, or where it's coming from inside of himself. He just does it. And it's faith. It's like, and so, in a sense, I keep thinking about that in terms of a performance as good as this is by a kid that young. And it's like you just embolden the kid by saying, this is your world. Yeah. Uh, this is what's happening in your world. How would you react? And then let the kid do this. Yeah. I don't know how you have the kid block out everything he actually knows about real life. Uh, that's, that's, that's the trick in this movie. That's the tough part. Yeah. Yeah. Lenny Abramson did uh, whatever he did. Yeah. And... And that's, to me, there are moments in the film that, as a film viewer, you want them to be satisfying in a very specific way. Uh, Like The Escape. You want it to be this huge moment of triumph. Because it is. This is an exciting day. You know, and one that I think is earned because we spend so long in in room. Uh, And so we want it to be have the, you know, we want the sun to be shining bright. We want, uh, triumphant music. We want, uh, the kid to like, to immediately like grow acclimated to his situation and call out to a stranger. And then the stranger, like gra- a, a cop or something grabs, uh, old Nick. And it's like, you sir are under arrest. Like now, obviously we don't actually want that, but we want something that feels like that, that right. feels as big as that. We want a movie moment. We want a movie moment. And it is a movie moment, but it's also, I think, rooted in how things would actually go, which is the kid spends so long just looking at the sky. He rolls out of the part out of the carpet. He looks at the sky. And that in itself is amazing to him. Mm-hmm. And I and just it's hard. It almost feels like a horror movie when I'm like, get out of the truck. Get yes, out of the truck, absolutely. Kid. Stop looking at this stupid sky. You'll have the rest of your life to look at the sky if you do this right. Um, and there's like, get out of the truck. And then he jumps out of the truck, but he's not. And then he's seeing other people for the first time in his life. Right. He's seeing houses and yards. He's seeing the actual world. Uh, 
and he's just mystified by all of it. He still has something he has to do and he ha- and he kind of remembers it, but let's not forget he's a six-year-old kid right. on top of everything else. And so all of this stuff is overwhelming him and I just keep wanting, I keep wanting the satisfaction that I want, but that, that's not how this is going to be. Right. Even right down to a stranger assuming he's a little girl. Right. Because he's got the long Which hair. Which I did for the first 20 minutes of the movie, even though oh, his wow. name was Jack. I was like, oh, wow. why is her name Jack? I don't know. It's a, you know, hey, uh, the mom must be uh, kind of in a weird headspace. Understandably so. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's... <laughs> I like when a movie doesn't give me what I want, but in fact gives me something better because in doing so it challenges me. Um, it doesn't pander to me. It would have been super easy to give me exactly what I wanted. And I probably still would have given the film something of a pass because, Hey, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead the film is, is committed to the reality that it has created and to the characters that it has created. If you had, if, if Lenny Abramson or Jacob Tremblay had even for a moment indicated that this kid had seen any of this before in a real situation, not on TV, it like it would have been shattered, you know, in that same, in the same way. Um, like I watched, uh, I was watching daredevil on Netflix. Why? Cause it's, well, first off, cause it's great. Hmm. All right. I've never seen it, so I should not. It is very good. And I will say it is the best work of Vincent D'Onofrio's career. Wow. And I don't say that lightly um, because I think he's a great actor. But he was and I didn't know that he was born to play the kingpin. Hmm. But boy, is he. But one of the things about the character of Daredevil is that he is blind. Now, he also has gone through intense training to learn to use his other senses and they are heightened and he's able to do some tremendous things and good for him. But there, there are several moments when I just, I don't believe that he's blind at all, you know? And I recognize that that's what makes him super and good for him. But at the same time, you've broken the reality now. And now I don't, now it just feels so false to me. And in that, and and in that moment when, when uh, Jack escapes, if they had even for a moment shown familiarity or, 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 or Jacob Tremblay showed that he, that he recognized something or that he was too comfortable with anything that he was seeing or interacting with, it would have taken me out of the scene, but at no point do they do that. And so that is to the film's credit. And Yes, that scene doesn't give me what I thought I wanted. It gives me so much more. And I right. think that is what the film does so often is it subverts our expectations and instead insists that we meet the characters where they are instead of insisting that they meet us where we are and give right. us what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then I will say, so we've talked a lot about Jacob Tremblay and I, I do want to talk also about Brie Larson. One more thing though. Oh, go ahead. About... Um, that moment. Okay. Uh, there's almost like a maybe 30 or 30 seconds or a minute free pass of sorts with the, with the believability of his situation mm-hmm. in that moment because of the single moment when he opens his eyes mm-hmm. and he sees the sky and the camera's like right on him. Yeah. And he sees what he's never seen before, or at least not in this scope. And it's like the world is opened up to him and it's, you believe so strongly in his eyes and in, in his kind of, 
Yeah. He's sort of like frozen in place that he has never, ever experienced this. And you are shocked by his shock. Yeah. That he could have almost blown it, you know, and indicated yeah. for another, for a minute in or after that. And it, it would have been okay because you're still kind of riding on the high of that, of yeah. how you felt for him in that moment. Yeah. It's just beautiful. That, that moment, I mean, beautiful is maybe not the right word because it's an extremely harrowing, horrifying moment. Yeah. And he has, and you, you want, he's, you can hear in his head, his mom's voice kind of replaying the, the steps that he has to take in order to escape. It's like roll, yeah. look, you know, wait for it to stop and then jump and then run all this stuff. And it's going through his head. And at one, there were a couple of points where he's not repeating that. And you're like, no, 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 don't, yeah. don't forget. You keep, keep thinking, keep thinking because you don't want something to happen to yeah. him. Yeah. Um, Wow, it's just such a such a great moment. Well, and that also speaks to just the sense of urgency that is created um, in that moment, but everything before that, mm-hmm. and you just realize that this is that Brie Larson's character is just always looking for the opportunity to to get out of here. That she has not settled into this and like, okay, well, this is horrible, and I guess this is the rest of my life and that sort of thing. That she's always working to make her life better and and her child's life better, um, and I think Brie Larson really shows a strength to her character while also playing certain things up. Like she was abducted when she was young, when she was what, like fourteen? I think more like seventeen. Okay, a little bit older, um, but still locked into a certain way of thinking. Um, so she has to raise a kid on her own while also blocking out the, the horror that she is experiencing on a daily basis. Um, and so it's not a case of arrested development because it's not like she comes out and she's just 17 again, because her experiences have definitely aged her, but in a very specific way, Mm -hmm. she does not operate like a standard, movie trauma victim or a standard movie 17 year old or a standard 23 year old or however old she is now. Um, it is, it's, it's this very, again, like the circumstances of the film are so specific that the amount of effort required of the, the director, the writer, um, and the actors they could have they like they could have placed their feet wrong at any point, and I don't think they do. And I think a lot of that has to do with her um, and her her commitment to. I think partially the commitment to not making the character too likable hmm. or too sympathetic, um, especially in that second half. She does a lot of stuff that that is distancing. And that I feel like, oh, I want to be on your side. Why are you pushing people away? Uh, but then, you know, the film just sort of has to remind us that, yeah, you're, you have not experienced what she has experienced. So maybe cut her some slack for right. a moment, um, which I think will bring us into some of the other performances. Um, I think Joan Allen does a wonderful job and she, she provides a really nice tonal change of pace. Um, especially when she's dealing with Jack. And one of the moments that I absolutely welled up is when she is getting, giving Jack a haircut. Mm. And as she is doing so, he very matter of factly says, I love you. Mm. And it's such a wonderful and again, earned moment. 
Um, not merely because he is now letting her cut his hair, mm-hmm. but that in the midst of that act, he is showing why he's actually exa- he's actually saying why he is letting her cut his hair because he loves her Trust and he her. trusts her. Mm-hmm. Um, and her reaction in that moment is marvelous. Uh, when she is arguing with her daughter, when she is trying to, because she also has had a pretty rough few years just trying to live without her daughter. And now suddenly she's a mother again, except she can't be the type of mother she was because now her own daughter is not a child anymore and has a child of her own. So it's man. Yeah. Complicated. It's so complicated. Um, and yet you get these, uh, you get these complicated moments in very quick, short doses. I feel like I don't know that you see Joan Allen all that much, but you get not really no, or William H. Macy even less. Yeah. Um, but you get who they are right away, but it doesn't feel cliche. Yeah. It's because, you know, they got good actors to do this and they communicate something by their body language, by who they, how they look just on the screen. Yeah. Joan Allen as an actress is is not talked about enough. I think <laughs> she's she's a marvelous actress. Um, I can watch her in basically anything, um, and because there's just there's a definite strength to her, but there's also a certain frailty as well, depending on the character that she's playing. Um, in that way, she was the perfect Pat Nixon. I'll say <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, I forgot she was in that. Yeah, and nominated for uh, <laughs> for supporting actress. Um, not nominated for this, which is, I guess because of a certain, uh, because of limited screen time, I guess I could see that. But this is absolutely what a supporting performance needs to be. Hmm. She's there when she does everything that is required of her. She crafts a character where she interacts with the leads makes a great deal of sense. And I think she does a, a wonderful job. So one character that I respond to so well is the character of Leo played by uh, Tom McAmos, who I know from one other movie. Yeah, I've never seen him. The Sweet Hereafter. Oh, yeah. Did you ever see The Sweet Hereafter? It's been so long, but okay. I don't remember him. He plays Sarah Polly's father, who uh, also apparently makes out with her on a regular basis. Oh. So that character is trouble. Yeah. And so so maybe that because that's the only time I've ever seen him, the minute he shows up in room, like, don't trust that guy. Well, Keep I, him away from your I, kids. I don't remember him in that movie, and I didn't trust him. There was something about the way, you know, that first dinner table scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's sitting across from mom and Jack. Mm-hmm. And the way he kind of focuses on Jack mm-hmm. made me go, it was a red flag. It was like, I know that on one level, it's like, oh, it's just like a, a family member who are a new family member. Who, yeah wants to show that he cares and that this that these people are welcome in his home even yeah. though he's never met them um but there was something about the way he was just leaning forward yeah and looking at the boy it's just like i don't want them to ever be in a in a room alone yeah I, but then he meanwhile proves, when they are in a room alone it's one of the most wonderful yes, scenes yeah it's just and it's I, like the, the movie makes you makes you earn his makes him earn his trust how do you say that Makes him earn our trust. Makes him earn our trust. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that it would for Jack. Absolutely. No question. And and in those moments, it's... I just love when an actor can tap into real life. I don't know if uh, Tom McAmos has children or grandchildren, but boy, it sure feels like he does when he's just like, oh, I yeah. wish there was someone to play with me. 
Oh, well, guess I'll go get something to eat. And just yeah, like, it's a great moment. It, it's such a marvelous. And then, and then how he is with his dog mm-hmm. and just knowing how big of a deal this is for Jack and just looking for the opportunity because he understands that he is the outsider here, mm-hmm. but he has a part to play. And that is, I like, you know, I would, I will not presume to tell, uh, the Brie Larson character, how she should feel. That is way beyond me, but I can make this kid feel good. I can make him feel comfortable and I can bring this dog into his life. Yeah. And, and when the kid, when Jack sees the dog, that is the other time I got. Oh, absolutely. That that was the moment for me. Such a (laughs) wonderful moment. moment. I was like, Oh, um, and so it's when, as people are talking about the film, I feel like they do not talk enough about Tom McCamus who hits his notes yeah. just right. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, nobody, we haven't talked about him as Sean Bridgers as old Nick, who mm-hmm. is a character. I, nobody talks about because I don't think we want to. Yeah. We don't want to talk about this man because he's such a monster. But what I like about him again, this just goes to the, the reality created by the filmmaker and the actor, he's he's a monster, yes, but he's not a villain. He's not a su- which is to say he's not a super villain. He's not a movie villain. He's not even that bright. He's easily fooled. Um, his behavior is monstrous, obviously, and he's he's doing very evil things. But he there's a banality Absolutely. to his evil that I think is so uncomfortable. We want to believe that only uh, a certain type of movie villain would be capable of this, but no, yeah. it's just some guy. Yeah, who, that, go, who goes to work know. every day mm-hmm. that you see at the store. Yeah, and there's something very there's something very uncomfortable about that. Uh, Sean Bridges, I've only seen him really in one other thing, which was Deadwood. Uh, have you seen Deadwood? Yes. Okay, he plays Johnny, which is one of Al Swearengen's uh, henchmen. And he's, uh, wow. He's like naive. He's a bigger, he's a big role in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. He's naive. Uh, he means well, he is very much not old Nick. No. Um, but we need, we need the menace of old Nick. We need the callousness of old Nick. Um, and then little things like when he, when he brings a truck for Jack in that moment, I'm just like, oh, I want to kill this man so much because how does he have the gall to do this? Mm-hmm. He does not care about this kid at all, except maybe as some kind of novelty. But he's going to show up and do this, and then everything's supposed to be maybe fine. I don't know. Like, yet you haven't earned the right to get this kid a present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's like, you know, who cares? But I don't know. Do you, did you feel that way? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, in I, that I, moment. I picked up right away that uh, that it was good casting, a good casting choice to have someone that didn't look evil. Yeah. Uh, the, the minute he walked in, I was confused because of that fact. Mm-hmm. I was like, is this the guy that's keeping them here? I don't, yeah. I thought it might be like a friend. A friend who yeah. knows that they're there. Somehow they let him in too. Or, because he just seems so docile. Yeah. He just seemed nice. He seemed like a nice guy. And yeah. there there was a, maybe because someone was entering the world that has been established as only this woman and this child. Mm-hmm. And it's a man. He comes in. 
there is a, a, a kind of menace that I yeah. didn't necessarily attach to. Oh, that's that guy. That's the guy who's keeping him here. Yeah. It's more like, uh, who who is this guy? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I had that, that same reaction as you did. Just the banality. That's a great word. Well, and the thing that gets me, okay, so I'll go back a little bit. When Jen and I were first moving from Chicago to Los Angeles, there was a national story that was going on. And it was it happened in St. Louis. And it is the story of uh, this kid named Sean Hornbeck, who had been missing for many, many years. And then there's this other kid who was missing for a few days. And as the cops were looking for the kid that was had been missing for a few days, as they were searching for him, they found that this man had abducted him. But also in that man's apartment was Sean Hornbeck and had been there for many, many years. And so was then reintroduced to his family. And, you know, he was gone. I think he was taken at age eight or nine. And now he's a 15 year old kid, you know, and so he's he literally grew up. Mm -hmm. They lost a child and now they have a teenager and he had like an eyebrow ring. That's got to be kind of strange. Like, and that to me brought up so many questions. How did this kid get an eyebrow ring? I know that he was allowed to go into town, but he would always come back to the apartment because the guy had done such a number on this kid psychologically that he, the idea of running was never, that was never, never entered his mind. Um, which speaks to a very special kind of evil yes. that like, I don't even need to enforce it anymore. This kid will enforce it himself if I do it right. And so there's something about when old Nick comes in, he does seem friendly and it's because he has created such an, an environment, such an atmosphere of terror and intimidation and power and control. He doesn't have to project menace. It's already there. It's been there for years. And I think that's another thing that I think is, is speaks to the specificity of when we come into the story. You know, he doesn't come in like he doesn't come in, you know, twirling his mustache or anything like that um, to in so that we know for sure he's the villain. Uh, it's something that we realize after a while. And the fact that it takes us a while to realize he's the villain for me, I was like, Oh, I should have realized that sooner. Right. You know, um, I don't know. It's, there's just so much about, there's so much about the film. And, and it, the more I talk about it, the more I'm convincing myself, like, man, this mm. really was a tightrope to walk this film tonally for, on every level. And, if it had stepped false once in any character or any scene, it all would have come crumbling down, I think. Simply the fact that the first hour takes place in a single room yeah, is tightrope all by itself. Exactly. How, yeah, do you, how do you keep that interesting visually, for instance? And they do such a wonderful thing of... it's. It never seems super clear exactly how big the room is once you're there. You know, like when you're inside. And you just, you know, because like, okay, well, there's the bathroom, there's the TV, there's our kitchen area, there's the bed, here's the wardrobe. They all seem like different rooms in the house. Mm -hmm. And it's shot that way because 
it, sort of, and, and I think that speaks to it being from the kid's perspective, that this is the only world he's ever known, so he doesn't know it's small. Right. Um, and only, and I love that later when she returns... And she and she sets foot inside. All, all the stuff is gone, but now we have it's it's you know daylight is pouring in, and we're able to see it standing back from the doorway, right? Which is never a situation. She's never seen it from that angle, and in that moment we realize this thing was tiny. tiny. Mm-hmm. It's a shed, you know, and you know, and in that moment it. I, I had an appreciation for how the first half of the film was shot, that it had that tiny of a space to work with. Now, obviously, yeah. they, you know, maybe they built a larger thing to actually shoot in. But but the, the creativity required, but without announcing itself as creativity, because creativity can be exhilarating, and you certainly don't want to feel exhilarated while you're watching right. Room. Um, I was reminded of the movie, is it called Tape? It's got Ethan Hawke yeah. and Robert Sean Leonard and Uma Thurman? Yeah. And it all takes place in one hotel room, and the number of angles that that uh, was it Linklater yeah keeps uh, shifting around the room, so it keeps it fresh all the time. Or even maybe a better example is Twelve Angry Men. Sure. Who you, in that you just kind of keep there's like another concentric circle that you kind of move out to, and you can yeah. see more of the room. Or you're now you're behind the water cooler or something, so you can kind of see that perspective. Yeah. And this movie was like that in the first hour. It's like oh, so we're seeing now this corner, and we see how this thing is kind of separating this from this. Oh, I see how she's done this. Yeah. But even then, it does still feel kind of large. And yeah. you're stuck in that room too, so you're kind of getting comfortable as well. Yeah. And so you're looking around going, okay, there's actually enough room to kind of be comfortable if you were here for the first five years of your life. Yeah. When you come back to that moment at the end of the movie, and it, it's brilliant how he does it, um, and it's simple to do. It's like now you just see the whole thing all in one shot. And you know, normally if you, like if, you know, you've lived in an apartment, say five years. Yeah. And then you go back to do a, a, a a check, you know, to make sure you got everything. Yeah. It seems so much bigger yeah. because there's nothing in it. This has the bizarre effect. There's nothing in it, but it looks half the size. Yeah. And I, I, like you said, they probably did that on purpose. Like they actually probably built two different things, but it, that doesn't make it less true in life. It's like, yeah. you know, you go back to your childhood home, you know, whatever it is, everything seems smaller. Yeah. You know, whenever you go back, oh, because yeah. you've grown, you're a bigger person. Oh, when I went back to Taft, California, mm-hmm. a town that I understood even as a kid was not a big mm-hmm. city. But the seven minutes that it took to drive from one side of the town to another. Wow. When you're a kid, seven minutes is a long time. When I returned back as a grown up, I was astonished at how tiny my hometown yes. is yeah <laughs> it's it's ridiculous yeah. and and you know that i i think that's interesting that you that you mentioned that you're able to get they shoot it when when they come back they shoot it room in one shot before they'll shoot here's the bed right. and that one shot for the bed one shot for the toilet one shot for the bathroom uh, the the kitchen um and when you realize, but then you realize like, oh yeah, this place is so small. We can absolutely capture the whole thing in one shot. And what that sort of conveys to the audience unconsciously is this is a thing that all you have to, you don't even have to turn your head to see all of it. Hmm. You know, like we're, you and I are sitting in my office and I'm looking at you and just even incorporating my peripheral vision. 
I can't see all of it. I can't see my computer over on that wall. I would need to turn my head to see it. Mm-hmm. Room is so small. You don't need to turn your head to see anything. You got it all in one shot. At the end. At the end. But at, at, the, at end. the beginning, in the first hour, it plays with this, uh, you know, that wonderful film technique or reality, which is that, you know, in your mind, you see beyond the edges of the frame, unless the director has closed you in for some reason. Right. And this, he kind of uses, I, I believe he's using the idea of the fact that you, that your mind wants to think that there's mm. something beyond that. So, if you're just shooting the bed, you know, you, you, you could maybe subconsciously think, well, there's probably maybe 15, 20 feet beyond this way, 15, 20 yeah. feet beyond this way. You never really know because you don't see it all in one, in one shot until the end. And it uses your your expectations, your I would say your unconscious expectations of what life is. That, oh, here's the bed. Well, I know what a bedroom looks like. Right. Oh, there's the toilet. I know what a bath, and, then, and a bathtub. Mm-hmm. I know what a bathroom looks, uh, bathroom looks like, or a kitchen. And only when you realize that, oh, they're all within three feet of each other. Yikes. Um, yeah, it's, it, but you're absolutely right. By not showing, by having stuff continue out of the frame, we fill in the rest with our experience. Right. And only at the end do you realize, oh my gosh, I have not experienced this at yeah. all. Um, I'd love to see the, uh, the storyboards. Yeah. Or as they're developing the storyboards for that first hour. And like, how can we f- not fool the audience? Because the audience knows they're in a shed. Anyone coming to see the movie knows they're in a shed. Yeah. But how can we fool the audience while they're watching it into kind of falling into the assumption that it's bigger than it is? Yeah. Just by how we shoot it. Let's get creative. It almost feels like it's as big as a two car garage. Yeah. Like at, when you're in there, it's like, now obviously living in a two car garage is still bad, but it's somewhat roomy. And then you realize, oh no, this is. This is indeed a shed. Yeah. And you know, in talking about this, uh, one thing that I was, fa- that when the Oscar nominees were, were announced, I remember being kind of iffy about Lenny Abramson as, a, as best director. Um, especially when, when a lot of other notable directors uh, were not nominated. Um, the, most, the most notable of the bunch, the biggest surprise was probably Ridley Scott for The Martian. I didn't love The Martian. But uh, but directorially, it is pretty solid achievement, and it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and I think a lot of people, including me, were surprised by Lenny Abramson's uh, inclusion. But now that we talk about this, you realize that yeah, the film isn't. It's it certainly isn't Mad Max or uh, The Revenant, like these very big, you know, these big achievements. He ma- he makes choices that are all very small, but they're key. They're vital. Every one of them. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so we can move on, uh, and and we should move on. Uh, did you have anything else to say, just technically uh, or artistically, about Room before we before we continue? Uh, nothing comes to mind. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think about the, the the contrast of what we're talking about with the room, the the shed, yeah. how it was shot, and then we get in the house, yeah. the parents' house. And uh, and there's a lot of what you might call vista shots of, of the inside of the house. It's like, here's a wide expanse of living room. There's a wide expanse of kitchen. Yeah. And this kid, especially the kid who's never seen anything at all but the shed, you know, has free reign to be in any of this, any part of the yeah. frame that is any part of this room that is only part of a bigger structure. And it's it's fun thinking about, you know, the room and how it must have been shot, but it's also fun to think about how he used the big house yeah. 
and uh, shot shot that as well to make it seem bigger than it yeah, is. Almost to the cavernous. Kid. Yeah, yes. to the kid. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just a brilliantly made movie, and I hadn't really thought about it much either until this discussion. But it's yeah. it's really a remarkable high wire act, as you call it, and really well done. Uh. So we'll move into uh, the companion film, but before we do so, I think I need to qualify <laughs> uh, why this is the companion film. So one thing that I that I do think is interesting is that you know when when our two leads get out of room and they're out in in the real world, uh, and now Brie Larson's character has to interact with her mother. She has to interact with her father. And then there's interviews that she's going to be doing. And suddenly, you know, as horrible as her life was, she knew what to expect. She knew what to expect of her son. She knew what to expect of old Nick. And those are the only two people she had any interaction with (coughs) for several years. Now she's talking to all these other people, none of whom know what she's experienced, but all of them have a general idea maybe of what she's experienced. So they're asking questions, they're making judgments, not always like uh, like a negative judgment, but they're definitely judging the situation. And one of the questions, it's so interesting, one of the questions that is asked of her by the interviewer is, why did you not just get, why didn't you just tell this man to take your your child to a hospital where he will have an absolute better life. And she gives this look like it has never occurred to her. And I got to say, it didn't occur to me either. Like the, that question was just as much a surprise for me as it was for her. Hmm. And, and undoubtedly in that moment, I myself found myself thinking like, yeah, why didn't she do that? And she herself is, is seems to be thinking, yeah, why didn't I do that? How selfish am I? And it's not long after that, that Mm -hmm. she tries to kill herself. And all it really takes is just basic interaction with other people for her to suddenly question everything that she's ever done, Mm -hmm. uh, for her son. And it's a very heartbreaking realization. Um, and I wouldn't say that people are hostile towards her. I don't think they are. Um, I think they, they just don't understand what she's been through. How could they, you know, I can't, I don't blame them. Uh, they don't understand. And thus I think there's an instinct to sort of not minimize the experience, but try to summarize it a little bit. Um, and, and treat it as though it were just any other experience. Like the reporter asking this thing, this very basic question um, that seems like the easiest question in the world when you're not in the circumstance. Um, And it just seems like a world that just does not understand and quite possibly doesn't want to understand. I don't want to know how a person like old Nick can do what he did. I have no idea. And so I think people, whether they, they are strangers or family members, I think they look at her and just, I don't know. I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. Again, I don't think they're hostile towards her, but I think they just, they're, they're made so uncomfortable 
by her situation. And this is, this is, you know, visualized perfectly, maybe a little bit too perfectly. This is maybe one of my problems with the film with the William H. Macy character who literally can't bring himself to even look at Jack to the point that he, I mean, he's avoiding it very actively. And I thought that's one of the, actually, I thought that was one of the moments when the film was a little bit too obvious. Cause it's like, that's a, if you had him look at the kid, but like the expression on his face was so obvious that I, d- I don't want this kid in my life. I don't want to think about what he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, William H. Macy is a good enough actor that can absolutely, absolutely convey that. But to have him literally just be craning his neck to avoid seeing the kid, I feel like is a little bit obvious. Um, I don't know. What do you think just about that? I didn't feel that while I was watching it. Uh, it's only in kind of peeling it back in moments like this, mm-hmm. as I talk about the movie with people, that it does seem a bit much. But I don't. I did not feel that during the moment because mm-hmm. I, I felt, I felt like I understood why. Yeah. And I know you do too. But I mean, it's it's that feeling of the worst possible thing that could have happened to your daughter just happened to your daughter yeah. over the last seven years. Yeah, over and over again. Over and over again. And this was the direct result of that. Yeah. Just by biology. And it represents what you could not, what he could not protect his daughter from. And the sense of failure that must be, you know, moving through every, you know, vein of his body just as he's looking at that, or does not, does not look at that kid, but as the reason he's not looking is because it's a reminder of how he failed. He failed his daughter. He failed to protect his own daughter. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. I understand it certainly from a thematic point of view, but I think also just from a basic human psychological point of view that that could be a reaction of somebody. If they didn't have to be in the house, which he did not, mm-hmm. he was there to greet her, you know, to welcome her back into her old life yeah. as best as he could. He's not part of the family anymore in the sense that he is now an ex-husband. Yeah. So he didn't have to be there. So he's like, you know what, I'm just, I think, I'm, I, think I need to leave. And he can do that. Yeah. It's like he, he has an out. The rest of the family does not. So he's going to take that out before he mans up yeah. and faces the truth of what happened. It's, it's all kind of academic in his head until he looks at the kid and he doesn't want it to be real. Yeah. So he's not going to let it be real. I get that. I don't, I, I'm not saying that I condone it you know, yeah. or that, um, that I wouldn't stop him in his tracks and say, wait a minute. I mean, this is your daughter. Come on. Right. And make him do something. I mean, that's maybe a different movie about him. Yeah. Um, but he definitely represents that that uh, facet of human psychology that refuses to look at mistakes. And it's it's now and the way you're phrasing it strikes me as interesting because William H Macy's character is not the first one to refuse to look at Jack. The whole reason that Brie Larson's plan works. Mm is because she rolls Jack up in the carpet, acting as though he is dead, knowing that old Nick is not going to want to look at this. Hmm. He is going to take her word for it, Yeah, take the carpet outside. He does not want to see... First off, the other thing that, that I forget is that Jack is old Nick's son. Right. He does not act that way. He definitely acts like, well, this is her son. Not, not at all mine. So he's definitely not looking at Jack that way, but then like, okay, my own negligence has caused the death of this boy who I guess, yes, is technically mine. 
I don't want to deal. Like I've been ignoring him basically my whole life. Right. I'm not going to start looking at him now. This is last last act of cowardice. Essentially, yeah. is not looking at the body yeah. of his own son, and and that she knows him well enough. She knows that he is enough of a coward that she can use that mm-hmm. and does, you know? Um, and so I think there's just this, this idea of like when we, when we experience trauma or brokenness or pain or loss or whatever, and other people, even if they mean well, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. And sometimes they'll try to understand. Sometimes they won't try to understand. Here's something that uh, when I think about Joan Allen's kind of tirade yeah. uh, with her in the living room that, in that one moment, I think about, I, I, I try to understand because you don't want Joan Allen to be yelling. Yeah. You don't want Brie Larson to be yelling. You understand why Brie Larson's yelling. You have to work harder to understand why Joan Allen right. is behaving the way she is. And when you do that, or when I do that, I see a woman who, uh, let's assume, has already gone through the grief of having lost her daughter. They have to, at some point, assume that she's dead. Yeah. Um, She's clearly not, it's not like some TV movie where she's still like marching for, you know, like, we need more eyes on this and more police and let's keep looking. It's more like she's moved on. Yeah. And maybe years have gone by, Mm -hmm. several years have gone by since she's made that decision. And she's standing in the living room. Now she's looking at her daughter. Now, not only does she have to like wonder, how am I going to make my daughter feel welcome back in her own home? She has to go, I, I gave up yeah. on this girl. I gave up on, and she has every right to be angry at me. Yeah. Why can't we just pretend, almost pretend like it didn't happen? Yeah. You're back. Our home is safe. Yeah. I love you. I want to be your mom. Let's just start there. Let's forget that all this other stuff happened. Yeah. Because it's too painful for her to kind of turn back and look at herself and go, you know what? I, I'm at fault on some level here yeah. as well. Uh, Macy's character obviously knows that. Yeah. And he has left the family. We don't really know exactly what went on, but you can assume that it had to do with the missing daughter or the dead daughter. Hmm. Um, and he can't face it. In a sense, her lashing out at her daughter in those moments is her William H. Macy walking away. Yeah, it's her version of it. It's like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with you being weird. Yeah, because of all this stuff that happened to you. I just want to pick up where we left off. Yeah the 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 reaction is partially I don't understand what you've been through and I don't want to and I'm just not going to even look at it. But it's also to look at that is to face my own level of responsibility, even if it's minimal, mm-hmm. you know, undoubtedly I'm sure that Joan Allen and William H. Macy, they probably could have done something, maybe not directly to avoid this, but maybe planted some kind of seed of suspicion of strangers in right. their daughter early on in life. It just, <clears throat> that could have prevented her from trying to help this guy with whatever it is he needed help with. Um, and so to even, yeah, to, to look at for William H. Macy to look at his grandson for all intents and purposes and for Joan Allen to, uh, to engage with her daughter at the, you know, years after assuming she was dead, um, 
is to confront their own level of responsibility. Right. Uh, which they had probably already made their peace with. I mean, to the degree that you can, you know, in the same way, it's like, I have, I have grieved. I am, mm-hmm. my heart is still broken, but I, life goes on. I probably could have avoided this. I'm not sure how, but life goes on. Um, and then suddenly life has not gone on. Life has gone right back to where it was. And now you're being faced with concepts of blame and responsibility and horrors all over again, because all over they've, again. They've put those feelings to bed as well. Cause it's yeah. not to say that they didn't feel like they were to blame before. Right. But, enough time would have gone by that they could have either lied to themselves or come yeah. to some actual real you know, reasons to kind of spackle over those feelings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the movie is uh, another brilliance of the movie is that it's the way it's structured is you, you are inside the heads of these two characters from the first to the, about the middle of the movie. And then you mentioned it earlier that there's a, there's an aspect of Brie Larson's performance that makes you kind of not like her. Yeah. For a while, and that puts you on the side of the family. Like the family is, oh, they're just doing their best, yeah, to try to make her comfortable, but they're also yelling at her and they're also walking out on her. So while you're kind of put off by Brie Larson, you're kind of forced to come to term your own terms, yeah, with what they must be dealing with inside their own heads, and you kind of yeah. project that. Uh, obviously, you're, they're not saying these things; they're not in a therapy session where all this comes out. You have yeah. to project it on onto them from your own experience. And my experience is that, yeah, those are really raw ugly feelings yeah. that can always come back to the surface if the right thing is presented to you, yeah. the right memory or the right conversation or the right kind of similar thing that might be happening to a friend of yours or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then you're confronted all over again with those things that you thought you might have dealt with just because time has gone by. Yeah. But in fact, they're still very much alive yeah. and they're not going away. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that I think about regularly and it works its way i don't think about it regularly i dream about it regularly and it literally is in my dreams that not to beat a dead horse (laughs) that's not a good phrase either um that my dad shows up Hmm. and it turns out he was faking it all along i of course it doesn't make any sense your dad andy kaufman yeah something like that um and just in the dream it's like, I'm so angry at him for like, why would you be gone for so long? We all thought you were dead. Like, what is it? What did you need to take care of? Like, this is ridiculous. I I was without a father for all these years. It was a mixture of that. And I don't care. You're here now. And that's all I care about. Hmm. Um, And then just trying to make up for lost time. Like this, this is a dream that happens a lot. My, mm. It's weird. My my uh, relationship with my dad has manifested it, since his death um, has manifested itself in phases in mm. my dreams. Uh, for the first few years, he would show up in my dreams and he wouldn't talk. Mm. Uh, he would just be standing there. Usually in any number of circumstances, it could be like, he's just there. It could be like the most ridiculous dream type thing. And then suddenly he's just standing there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he would start talking and then it was like, Oh, this is wonderful. And then I would wake up and be like, Oh, this is very angering. Um, And then it turned (laughs) into a really, and this is where I am now. It's very frustrating where he'll be in my dream. And I will say, this is a dream. 
I am not going to let myself believe this because I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel really mad. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's not a dream. I'm here. And I was like, no, you've said that before. Uh, this is a dream. Stop screwing with me. And he's like, Tyler, I'm here. Hmm. I I'm back. This is not a dream. And then every time, Uh. like an idiot, I recognize it's dream me. I can't hold, I can't be that angry at myself, but every time, uh, I just think like, that's wonderful. He's he's adequately reassured me. And then I give him a big hug and then we hang out and I wake up Ah, and I am so furious. Um, And I do think like, but, but those dreams have caused me to think that if my dad did show up, now admittedly I did see him in the coffin, it would have to be, pretty intricate this fake death that he did but if my dad were to show up in my life um and it turns out it was all just a big misunderstanding or something like that there would i would probably i have i am in no way i have i am not to blame for my dad's death i recognize that but if he were to suddenly show up and and after so many years of me just saying like, okay, well there's nothing I could do. He's gone time to move on. I would feel that guilt. I would feel that blame and I would feel angry that he is making me feel this now at a time when I should be happy, by the way, that's the other thing is that everybody should be happy in this movie. They're reunited. And yet they can't let themselves be happy because there is all patina, this other stuff. There's that that layer of happy in the movie. Yeah. Because we all know that there would be a, a joyous moment. Oh, you've been rescued. Course, yeah. You're not in that situation anymore. And it's still there all the way to the very end. But to the movie's credit, to the writer's credit and director's credit, it's it's the movie is about all those things underneath that have to also be there. Yeah. There's a relief, certainly, and a joy, maybe. But there's also the guilt that you yeah. have in your dream, you know, and there's the anger and there's the, uh, I, I had moved on cause you're dead. You're, yeah. you are in a sense kind of dead to me. And I have to come back to some place in my head where you're alive to me Yeah, and that can't happen right away. I don't know how to make that happen. And so I'm going to yell at you instead. And one thing that I thought, and oddly enough, I find myself welling up a little bit right now thinking about it. I try to think about this and this, this speaks to just how emotionally vivid the movie is that I find myself thinking about these characters as though they were real people that I know. Um, and I think about Joan Allen's character and it's the day after she found out that her daughter is still alive and is now safe and is about to be returned to her. And maybe even not just the day after, let's say, the next several days, the week, month, whatever. And she wakes up in the morning and now she is, and it's like, she's literally waking up into a dream. She's waking up into the reality that I have been living for so long, which is I lost my daughter is actually not the reality. Yeah, that's true. And like how glorious must that moment be 
when you wake up, when she would wake up, and again, fictional character, mm-hmm. but still, she would wake up and remember, oh my gosh, what a wonderful day. Every day is a wonderful day. But that, and that's the theory, and undoubtedly that's probably true, but then there's the, there's the cold hard reality of there's still a lot of stuff to work through with myself, mm-hmm. with my daughter, with my grandson. There's still a lot of work to do. It's almost like we have to earn this joy. Yeah. Um, because there's there's been a lot of damage done. It does remind me, and I, I, you may kick me for bringing it up. We talked about this before the show, but um, in Castaway, mm. which is a, a movie similar similarly themed, uh, he's come back and he's having this party where they're offering him, of all things, crab legs. Yeah. And, you know, they're all wishing him well. And as they're leaving the room, and he's sort of left alone, the last person to leave, one of the last people to leave is like his old comrade, and his mm-hmm. old friend from FedEx or whatever. Yeah. And there's something about, I forget what the line is, but he says something in the most jovial kind of... we're going to bring you back to life. Gonna, oh, is that what Bre- he says? Or I think he says back from the dead. Oof. But he says, yeah, he says something like this, but maybe, I'm thinking of another line where somebody says, see you on Monday morning, or I don't know, mm-hmm. something just kind of almost like overly friendly, or hey, like elbow to rib, you're back in reality. Yeah. You know, let's go to work. You know, like, isn't life great that you're back? Um, but the truth is that he's a broken man and everything that he had before he left is now gone. Every opportunity he had to be a certain person to other people are now gone because he's been gone so long. And that, that effort on the part of whoever it was that said that to him or all those people really in that room to be kind and jovial and lighthearted and to offer him, I want to say almost in a kind of friendly sarcasm, like, Hey, here's some crab legs. You know about those, right? Yeah. Um, because no one would be stupid enough to just do it ha- absentmindedly, right? Yeah. It would have to be somebody who's like, he was there. He, he likes these, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Crab legs. Uh, a whole table of them. But but it's the same thing as, as Joan Allen and William H. Macy. Uh, uh, the same thing in the center of their behavior is is also in those characters as they're exiting the room and trying to be his friend. It's that, that inability to uh, confront the reality of what really happened. Yeah. And what was really lost, what was really broken, what is possibly never able to be recovered again. Yeah, and it reminds me of a movie that could have been the companion film had I not already had it uh, as the companion film for another movie many years ago, which is The Best Years of Our Lives. Ooh, good. Which is a film of, you know, veter- and it is, by the way, that movie that then, uh, le- that idea that then led to our uh, actual companion film. Um but yeah, it's these veterans who come, World War II veterans who come back to their small town and everybody just wants to act like, yeah. because World War II is the good war. It's right. the one where we're absolutely fighting evil. We're on the side of good. We won. And now it's back to reality, back to it. But it's not so simple. And people don't want to deal with the fact that it's not so simple. Right. Which then leads us to our, what an odd choice That's for a companion That's your segue film. right there. <laughs> uh, the companion film is a movie that for a while, uh, a film that you listed as your favorite movie. That's why I thought it was. like That's why you picked it. It was just going to rip me. Like a big joke? No, uh, it was, no, just a coincidence. Um, and that is Ted Kotcheff's First Blood, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone, the first Rambo movie. Now, AKA, actually, a.k.a. Rambo First Blood Part 1, as I saw on Netflix, which that seems wrong. That's off-putting. Yeah. Um, especially because 
part two has nothing to do story-wise with no, part one. No, different movies. Ugh, Netflix. Um, so, okay, First Blood is... I haven't seen it in a long time, but I have seen it a couple of times, and I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so much of it, you know, the sequels, and then just Sylvester Stallone as, a, as an actor, specifically an action actor. Um, so much of First Blood has... has been tainted by what came after it's yeah it's been absorbed and it's not yeah people don't think of the first movie as being this almost thoughtful in a way yeah i mean comparatively anyway for sure yeah but it, it actually does have this thoughtful sort of aspect that the others just simply don't have yeah yeah it's it, and it's it's not unlike sylvester stallone's like two iconic characters were just very poorly served by pop culture and in fact by himself like mm-hmm. in in later sequels and stuff like that um and it's one of those things that if you mention first blood or you talk about the first rambo movie people will almost laugh in the same way that people will assume that the first rocky is super cheesy mm-hmm. um which it definitely is not which it is not the third and fourth and fifth one absolutely but not that first one um and so Rambo, uh, sorry, First Blood is is about this guy getting back from Vietnam, Vietnam, the a uh, very unpopular war, and he's just trying to get where he needs to get, you know, and he just happens passing through. He's just passing through this town and runs across local law enforcement that just doesn't like his look. They and they they know that he is a vet. But they actually might view that as even more reason to be suspicious of him because who knows what might have happened to him over there. He could be really dangerous. Who knows? Better safe than sorry. Let's get him out of here. Uh, but then he doesn't like the way that they're treating him because he certainly does not deserve it. Uh, you know, he served his country and mm-hmm. did what he was supposed to do. And now he's being treated like this. And so he's a little bit. He's a little bit defiant, passively defiant, one could say, by simply being around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then things really ramp up. Uh, one could say they ramp up because Rambo. I would not say that. Yeah, I regret saying it. Um, and so you just so then this very strange type of action movie starts where it's this one guy versus the local police force, and headed by Brian Dennehy, who I think bring, brings that character a surprising amount of humanity, I think, um, and makes him a guy who, who actually, it, when I think of the movie Unforgiven, Gene Hackman's character, when I first saw Unforgiven, reminded me a lot hmm. of Brian Dennehy's character from First Blood, a guy who is probably a very decent guy and has a clear idea of law and order and wants good things for his community. But he's so committed to this idea of that, that he actually acts very inhumanely to people. And it's uh, it's law and order via almost fascistic means. Kind of. Yeah. And so that, so yeah, it's, it, and, and then thankfully uh, Richard Krenna shows up as Troutman, uh, who is, uh, that's, I don't remember if he's a Colonel or a captain or something like that, but, uh, but he was Rambo's superior in Vietnam 
and his job is primarily to, and I, I always found the Richard Crana character to be kind of silly. Oh, absolutely. He's um, terrible. His, his whole character I don't know is, if you saw me roll my eyes when you mentioned him. Um, not just because <laughs> well, his name is Troutman. Yeah, yeah. Um, his whole thing is just to like raise the stakes and just, it's like he's selling Rambo. Yeah, he's like, he, his, his function is to, is to remind them that he's been specially trained and yeah. you should be careful. You should, he's like a chorus, just standing on the yeah. side, constantly saying, you should be careful, it's Rambo. Yeah. Ah, let's, we'll take care of it. Yeah. And it's just like, the character is not necessary. I think they got it. And plus, I've seen Richard Crenna in other things, and he's okay. Mm-hmm. I've never seen him in anything where he was like, wow, what a good actor Richard Crenna is. Yeah. But in these movies, he's in, in all three Rambo movies, uh, I guess there's four now. I don't know if he's in the last one. Um, he is so cartoony in his performance style. Yeah. And I keep every. I've only seen Rainbow twice, but and I've seen all three recently. Uh, the first three, I ask myself every time he shows up, like, did they want him to be this cartoony? And to where everything he says is kind of like this. It's and his eyes just kind of roll and get bigger, and he kind of tilts his head when he makes a, a point that he wants to really get across, and yeah. it's just so broad. And I can only think, my only uh, conclusion is that Stallone wanted somebody like that to make his own acting look better, which kind of works. It does, because you believe Rambo in these movies. I do think Stallone is a an underrated actor in the right role. It is He is nominated this year for that Creed and absolutely deserves that nomination. And he's probably going to win, and he probably deserves to. I'm embarrassed that I haven't seen Creed yet because I've wanted to see it for so long. It's I marvelous. I haven't seen it yet. It's marvelous. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think Sylvester Stallone does a really good job I think he's in, great. in this film. Um, there, there's a quality to him, and this is going to sound like an insult. Um, he's a guy who pulls off quiet really well. Oh, he does. It just, and, and I recognize in saying that, it's just like, that I make, it sounds like I'm making like some kind of joke that like, oh, as long as he keeps his mouth shut, he's a pretty good actor. That's not what I'm saying. It's that he can convey a lot without talking. He just, there's a, I think he is a very physical actor to the extent that he can let you know what he is thinking, what he is feeling without telegraphing it, uh, too much, um, without talking and Ram and Rambo is a quiet character, a contemplative character, very introverted and just is dealing with his own stuff quietly and, and humbly. And testament to how good he is. I mean, he's Exactly like you say, he's very communicative by not talking, which is the opposite of Rocky, especially in the first Rocky. First mm-hmm. couple of Rockies, he's so verbose yeah, and always talking to everybody and telling everyone how he feels exactly. And he's always kind of trying to get get like a, get kind of a happy vibe going with whoever he's around. And, and so he's always talking yeah. and always kind of moving his hands and gesticulating. And this is the exact opposite of that. And yet he's still communicating loads yeah it's all angry whereas rocky is more of a happy character for lack of another word it's like more positive character i guess um befitting his you know uh gung-ho america sort of appeal uh rambo is also gung-ho america but in a very different way yeah um but yeah i especially the end now i when i saw the watched the first i'd seen it before but then i watched it again uh recently and it felt like the first time and when it gets to the end of the movie if you don't mind me jumping that far ahead. That's fine. Get to the end of the movie, and he's essentially destroyed the entire town. He's killed, like, what, 15 or 20 people, probably, out in the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, surrounding this town in Washington. 
And he's sort of alone. He's cornered. And he's uh, cornered not only phys- metaphysically, but physically but in this like small house, small uh, office building. But then a Corinna comes along, and they're having a, a dialogue, a conversation. And uh, Stallone, or Rambo, begins to completely break down emotionally mm-hmm. and is crying over the fact that all of his friends have been forgotten. Yeah. Clearly, America is in a terrible place because all of these fighting, good fighting men who did the ultimate thing for their country are forgotten. He himself knows that he kind of represents that to the people around him in this town. Yeah. Um, just by the way he's being treated. And he's blubbering. He's screaming in that Stallone way. Yeah. Uh, and I was... I was sort of outside of myself. I was enjoying the moment because it's a it's a great ending to the movie, and it just yeah. feels like all of the explosions that were happening before is happening in his performance right now. Yeah, and I think he pulls it off. But I keep thinking about all the people that make probably make fun of that scene. Yeah, because it is on the nose. It is overacting in a way. Yeah, it is uncalled for, given the fact that he just demonstrated his emotions over the last ninety minutes with explosions and guns and right. grenades and. Um, so he didn't have to do this, but I appreciated the fact that Stallone, I assume it was him who, who wanted it to be this way in the end. Yeah. I appreciated that he wanted those things to still be verbalized yeah. and that the theme of the movie, which is we can't forget what these guys have done. It doesn't, almost yeah. doesn't matter how the war itself turned out. The guys that fought it yeah. are important. They're valiant. They're good. And he wants that spoken as well. Maybe that's a, a hiccup in discretion, like you've already made, proved that point. Yeah. But I like that fact. In this movie, if it was a, a more nuanced movie, obviously it would be a wrong turn. But in this movie, I, I really appreciated that moment. And and then, of course, he gets carted away. He gets he has to pay the penalty for yeah. you know the destruction that he's meted out in this town. Um, so there's still justice and all. But he, again, I, I just think that moment is is appropriate. Despite well, how big it is. And when you think of, I mean, this was 1982, so we're definitely starting to get into those 80s action movies. And yeah. this this is definitely one of them. It's one of the films that, that kicked, it, uh, kicked it off. But when we compare this to, say, Commando, uh, Commando is definitely more fun because it's more ridiculous. Or even Rainbow 2. Which I never saw. Okay. I haven't seen any of them except this one. I would recommend seeing them. It's interesting okay. to see them. As, as a film lover, I think it's interesting to see all the Rockies, all the Rambos. Have you seen the most recent Rambo? I hear it's, I hear it's actually very good, but also insanely. Yeah, it's like the kill almost, quotient went up like by twice, yeah, I think. I, yeah. I don't really know. I haven't seen it. I have not seen um, it. I mean, I'm intrigued to see mm-hmm. it. I uh, will see it. I, I plan to see it. I just never saw it like in its time, like when it first came out. So, um, but yeah, like when I see Commando... It's a ridiculous movie. So many of these movies are ridiculous. This one, at least, the the action might be over the top, but the characters, even Richard Crenna's character, who's you know just very on the nose and all that, like they're vivid. You understand who they are. You understand who Brian Dennehy's character is and what he's trying to do. You definitely understand who Rambo is, and that they do have this speech at the end that yes is on the nose, but it's at the end of a of an action movie, and you and suddenly. All of these explosions, which in an, in another movie could just be viewed as senseless violence, when you realize that what what it comes from and just it comes from this place of anger and that he did not want to do this, either in Vietnam or now. This is not who he wanted to be. Right. Um, 
you know, it, it's something that, yes, it's on the nose, but I kind of ad- admire that they do it. Yeah. Um, and to bring these two very different movies together, Room and First Blood, um, Rambo First Blood Part 1. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rumbo? In, in bo- Whoa. Wait a minute. Watch out. Please use the edit button. There is no edit button. Not on this show. Uh, If you'd said it with a swear word, then maybe. Uh, Don't do that, though. Um, So, in both cases, and and I'll bring this back around to uh, Faith in in a moment, but in both cases, you have characters that have endured something really terrible. um, And that most other people cannot understand what they've gone through and the and as i said before and 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 running the risk of repeating myself too often um the people that don't understand it they're at the very least suspicious of it now nobody is going to get angry at brie larson except they kind of are uh and even even the reporter is just asking a is just asking a a basic question you know why did you not do this other thing for your child. But within that question is an assumption that, well, surely you, when you're in that situation, you would have the same values as we do. Um, and that you, and you would choose to implement those values the same way we would decide you should do it now. And it's just, it's very alienating and it's, and it just, there's a little. There's definitely some blame going on there, and while I don't necessarily think that Brian Dennehy's character is blaming Rambo, I don't think he he definitely is not sympathizing with him. He just, I think he has a a certain degree of respect for him, but more than anything, he just needs to keep the status quo going, mm-hmm. and I think that's what a lot of people want when they are faced with tragedy not necessarily in their own life but when they see it in somebody else's life it's that's horrible i want to do i'll do what i can for this person but mostly so that we can just go back to how things were or how i'm used to them because i don't want to think about you know the horrors of vietnam i don't want to think about this kidnapping and rape i don't want to think about a world where that happens i know it happens but i don't want to see it and that, and by looking at this person and hearing about what they've been through i cannot ignore this anymore and if i can't ignore it then maybe i'll actually have to do something about it on a wider scale and i don't want to do that either um and I do feel like, and this is a thing that we've talked about on the show before, I do feel like in the Christian world, there are certain things that we wish, and this is the thing that we kind of talked about with, with the, in the Spotlight episode, there are things that we wish weren't the case, things we can't make sense of. Yes, we will definitely put it down to, well, it's a fallen world and people are very craven and, and can be very terrible, um, but we also... And and we'll say like, well, you know, God lets thing lets bad things happen, you know, because of free will. Like we kind of have our standard answers, but the fact of them still make us kind of uncomfortable. Um, you know, to go back to, I was not, by the way, I I, and I feel like I say what I'm about to say a lot. Um, I don't like talking about my dad on this show because I assume everybody's tired of hearing about. It. It's like, yes, your dad, he's not alive. Got it. I don't think um, that's the case. It might not be. I don't know. Listeners, I don't want to hear it. If it is, uh, I already get mad at myself enough for bringing it up. Um, 
but so much about that experience, you know, I feel like I talk about my marriage a lot and I talk about my dad a lot. Well, let me say this. Those are the two. Whether or not you, whether or not you talk about them too much, this is one of the most appropriate movies to talk about that in. So carry on. Uh, Well, I wasn't planning on it. It just kind of, it just kind of came about, but so I was 20 when he passed away. And so I was the only person I knew who had lost anybody uh, of note. And, you know, my friends were, were very supportive and and they, they loved me and, and I did not get a sense of any judgment or anything like that. But, um, but then there are also people who just, they, they wanted to say the right thing and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I didn't get mad at them or anything like that, but it was just, you know, like I had people who talked about how I could take solace in the fact that, you know, my dad was a Christian and now he's in heaven and all that kind of thing. It's like, I, absolutely. But you know what? He's not here with me right now. And mm-hmm. that is angering. And that is sad. And he's never going to be. And that is sad to me. And the person seemed to not want to acknowledge the inherent sadness. And because maybe it made them uncomfortable. Um, maybe they didn't want to entertain the notion that the same thing could happen to them. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, and definitely when somebody else uh, experiences a, a tragedy, uh, you know, I think my first instinct is probably to maybe maybe not tell them to look on the bright side, so to speak, but to but to try to minimize the the pain and the tragedy and that sort of thing. Um, and so I feel like I feel like the Christian community, is not great at mourning with people mm-hmm. is not great at crying with people. I think we try to, because we recognize that God is in control in a larger sense and that, uh, and that we have to put our faith in something larger than not merely ourselves, but also our relationships, our experiences. And that if, as long as we put our faith in that, then we will, will never be destroyed. Um, and I agree with all that, but I, I feel like people are so quick to jump to that, mm-hmm. that I think that they are maybe a little bit callous and maybe callous isn't even the word, but it's the word I'm going to use. I feel like they're it's a little bit callous. Sort of absentmindedly callous. Sure. Not intentionally sure. callous. Yeah. There's nothing malicious going on. There's no, uh, nothing like that. Um, I, but I think they're a bit callous to people that have, that have experienced real, tragedy. And honestly, I don't even count myself among that. Yes, I have lost people and that is a sad thing. But compared to for using the movies that we've talked about, compared to a rape victim, right. much, much less kidnapping and multiple rape, uh compared to somebody who under, you know, saw the horrors of war, my life has pretty much been pretty good, you know? I mean, I had 20 good years with my dad. He wasn't abusive. He didn't hit me. There are plenty of people who whose dads uh, live to a ripe old age right. of horrible abuse, you know? Um, so I don't mean to say that I've had a tragic situation in my life, but anything that is, that is negative, I feel like the, uh, a lot of Christians and myself included in some, in some cases, just don't want to act like that exists or at the very least we're so quick to jump to the solution of God that we won't at least acknowledge that this is a sad thing that happened. Well, I know in my own life, uh, you know, I, 
I personally had a you know rough mm-hmm. childhood. My sister and brother had a rough childhood. My wife had a rough childhood, yeah. and my own, despite my own background, uh, even even I should have developed over time like some sort of like really sensitive like uh, patience mm. with a certain behavior that comes out of memories of those uh, events um, or certain emotions that come out of those events to this day, I should have, have, have built up some kind of like, not resistance so much as an under, a better understanding. Even so, m- my wife who has had, you know, had a, a very difficult childhood with her stepdad mm-hmm. um, and is now well beyond that in years, still has trouble dealing with certain kinds of scenarios in life or uh, she also thinks in a way that's kind of circular. So when one thing is bad, it tends to make everything else bad um, to a certain degree. And I tend to have a bit of a more optimistic point of view, Hmm. generally speaking, than my wife. So uh, when I, I know from just knowing my wife that, that she's experiencing one of those moments my f- even even despite all the things I should know, I still want to be uh, Joan Allen a little bit. Sometimes yeah. it's like it was so many years ago. You know that's yeah. that's what my gut is saying. It's like you know what we we all have trouble. <laughs> it's just the most horrible kind of things that go through your mind in, the, in those flashes, uh, almost like temptations. It's like you have to like bat them down. Yeah. It's like so much has happened that's good since then. Why don't you latch onto that? Um, that bad thing happened so long ago, surely it's faded or surely you've made it worse in your mind mm-hmm. than it actually was. Uh, but none of that is true. Yeah. These are real, real feelings and the real ramifications of feelings that have been left un, uh, unhealed, mm-hmm. if that's a word, for too long. And I'm guilty of the same thing in my own life. Yeah. And I have my things that I react to because of things that happened in the past or things that happened no. last year. That I may over, you looking back on it, I may think maybe I over, was overblown or something like that. But the truth is, it's it's still valid because they are still real feelings that you're still feeling about something that really happened to you. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm like Joan Allen. I mean, I'm like Joan Allen in my gut, and my heart more often than I am the consoling. Uh, I just want to hug you. Yeah. One of some of the worst moments actually are when Aubrey's having a bad day, and she calls me. I may have mentioned this on the on the podcast already at some point, but when she when she's at home and something's going wrong or something, I can always just hug her, um, and that's all I really need. You're talking about you know there are too many like cliche phrases that we go to to kind of try mm-hmm. to help comfort thing comfort people or make people feel better in an instant. Yeah. And of course, those things are never going to work. Um, and so I've learned with Aubrey that the best thing to do is just to hug her. And that's all she really wants. I know yeah. because after after the fact, she tells me that. But when we're on the phone and she has a bad day, I don't know what to do other than yeah. talk because you can't hug yeah. and you can't just like leave a line dead, dead air. Yeah. And so some of the things that come out of my mouth are just the stupidest, <laughs> like least consoling, yeah. least sensitive kind of things. And it's not intentional. It's just because that's how those kind of things yeah. come out when you're talking in that scenario. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm guilty. Yeah, and I think everybody is. Like, even if you've even if you've experienced tragedy in your own life, almost as a coping mechanism, just living in this world, 
I feel like we have to try to minimize things or try to say just the right thing that will comfort somebody rather than meet them where they're at mm-hmm. and try to understand them as ugly as understanding certain things can be. And so one of the things that I, that I wanted to talk about, and we should probably start wrapping up, but I have a number of, of Bible verses, um, is that, and this, I hope this doesn't sound too cynical. I don't want it to, is that like, one thing that I've talked about a lot on this show is that people will let you down. Now, that's not to say that everybody's horrible and all that kind of thing. I mean, I, I believe that people are fallen, but I don't want to overplay just how horrific everybody is. Like, most people are trying their best. That doesn't mean that they're not fallen. doesn't mean that they don't require redemption or anything like that. But th- by and large, the, mo- the v- majority of people I've met are trying their best and will do what they can to help you where they can, often quite selflessly. Um, but... They're limited in their in in their knowledge. They're limited in their experience, and they're limited in their ability to cope with the hard, hard realities of of life. And so, you know, when we are hurting, when we are trying to heal, uh, people might be able to be there for us, and they certainly will try. And it might not it might not quote unquote work. You know, um, or people might say the wrong thing and we feel even further away from them than than we would if they hadn't said anything. Um, and so the point that I want to say is that um, is that in the end. The Bible is full of God grieving over our circumstances and his heart being broken for the things that we have to go through. And that is something I find fascinating. And so I want to actually, I want to bring up this uh, quote from Rambo. It's towards the end there. All right, Rambo. Um, uh, I'm not going to do a, a Sylvester Stallone impression. I bet you can do a pretty good one. I think everyone can. Everyone can try. He's like Shatner in that way. Yeah. So Rambo says, I come back to the world and I see all these maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. And that's the, and I, I like the phrase, uh, unless they've been me and mm-hmm. been there. And quite literally, I don't know, you know, Robert, I don't know what you've been through. You don't know what I've been through. So there's only ever so much we're going to be able to relate to each other, even if we are trying as hard as we can. And then often we're not trying as hard as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so one thing that I want to say is that God does know what it is like, not merely to be human, through Jesus, but also God is omnipotent and omniscient and all the other omnis. Um, and so he knows very specifically what we are dealing with because he can, he has the ability to see inside our heads and to see our hearts and to see just how broken they are when things happen. And so I have a series of Bible verses that I wanted to read, and then I'm going to end on a quote from from room. So Psalm twenty two twenty four. 
For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Okay, this is all Psalms, by the way. So just uh, start reading through Psalms and you'll see a lot of this. Um, Psalm 146, verses 6 through 9. And be ready, because I'm going to throw the last one to you. Uh, Psalm 146, verses 6 through 9. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners uh, prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are, who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. So what I wanted to point out with those first few passages is that God cares very much for justice, but he also cares for the people that have been hurt, the people that, you know, the widows, the orphans, the, the, the foreigners, people who just are probably going to feel at a remove from the world around them, uh, either by default or because people are removing them. Um, and I've always been fascinated at the notion of why in the Bible, why are people so hostile towards widows and orphans? And it might just be a status thing. In fact, it probably is that. But I also do kind of wonder, and I know that this is going a long way to uh, to make a point that we were talking about earlier. Widows and orphans are unfortunate. They have lost parents or husbands. They are literally, if, if somebody's an orphan, they're literally, defi- the, the term orphan is somebody who's defined by their loss. The term widow is somebody who is defined by their loss. Um, and so I could, in the same way, almost like in the same way that lepers were sent away, I feel like widows and orphans are people that's just like, I don't want, society looks at people whose lives are so sad and they say, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to face the sadness that comes with you. Um, I don't want my heart to be broken by hearing about your very sad story. Uh, now, I don't know if that's actually true. Once again, I think it's probably a status thing. But I do find that interesting that he you know, talks about the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, prisoners, uh, the blind. And just that all of these people are people that are, are afflicted in some way. Mm-hmm. And in these passages, it definitely says that God cares about justice and he cares about taking care of you, but that also he understands where you're coming from and he cares very much about you, even if nobody else seems to, or if nobody else knows how to. That's the other thing. Like I said, a lot of people do care about you, but may not know exactly how to make that work. Um because they don't because they don't really know your experiences but god does and how does god here's the question and here is the answer psalm 139 verses 7 through 12 go where can i go from your spirit where can i flee from your presence 
If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your hand, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. All right. So I do like the idea that when I go when I go into heaven, you're there. When I try to go into the depths of the sea, you're there. You're you're just and the you, by the way, is God. Just for the record, um, that God is 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 everywhere. He is he is inside us. He is all around us. He knows what we are going through, and he will turn darkness to light, even the darkness of our emotions and our experiences. It doesn't mean that we're going to, it doesn't mean that those things are going to suddenly not have happened. It just means that we will be able to survive them and we'll be stronger as a result. I keep thinking of uh, the contrast between William H. Macy's character in Room and the guy whose name I've already forgotten, but the one who has a dog. Yeah. It's like if William H. Macy would just once look at the kid and then keep looking and then understanding exactly who he is and where he came yeah. from. That is the other guy. Yeah. The other guy is like open arms, yeah. understanding, even though he doesn't understand, just welcoming. I know you were made in sin, yeah, but you can still be in our house. Yeah. That's God in these verses. Yeah, absolutely. The, the acknowledgement that this was a terrible thing, but what a wonder! But wonderful things can still come out of it if we if we acknowledge it and if we let that be the case. Um, and so, I do want to quote this line by the by the character Jack from Room. Now, in this, he is talking about his mother, but I think this can apply to. And it's worth noting that he's he's saying this to the one person who's experienced what he has experienced quite directly. Um, but I feel like this is a good, this can be a thing that we can say to God, which is there are so many things out there and sometimes it's scary, but that's okay because it's still just you and me. And now that can be, I'm a little iffy saying that and saying, and using that as a watchword because there are other people, uh, who do want to help you. And I feel like there's nothing wrong with reaching out to people, understanding that they might not they might not be able to help you as much as, as they would like to, or as much as you would like to. So I'm reluctant to say that, you know, it's still just you and me. Like it's just you and God, everybody else can go screw themselves. That's not what I'm saying is that, is that other people can be free to make mistakes. And so can you, because in the end it is just you and God and God understands what you've been through. He understands what you're going to go through and he understands where you are now. And he cares very much for you and he grieves and cries with you when you go through terrible things and he will sustain you and bring you out of that. Not that like, again, not that it will have never happened, not that the pain will go away completely. You know, it's the things that you've been through, Robert, the things that I've been through, they still hurt to think back on them. Um, but we're still here and we are maybe a bit stronger maybe a bit more reliant on other people, maybe a bit more reliant on God. Um, and we can still mourn and grieve over those things, but they don't have to defeat us because we are locked into something that is bigger and more powerful and something that will redeem uh, 
the darkness and turn it into light. That is all very abstract. I apologize, everybody. Um, and we probably should wrap up. But uh, do you have any closing thoughts in general? I would say no. Okay. I feel that like is, on trial. That is it. <laughs> no, Your Honor. Yeah, it feels like you should be. You should cover the microphone and lean over uh-huh. to your attorney. Um, so, okay. I think we will leave it there. Thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to this episode. I apologize that it was so long. But, hey, we had to talk about Paddington. Um, <laughs> Oops. My bad. <laughs> so, um so yeah uh you can follow me on twitter at more lessons you can like us on facebook you can email me tyler at more than one lesson.com you can follow robert on twitter correct is that right i think so at the hornack is that what it is i think it is is that really i i set it up years ago and i can't remember oh okay do you do you use it no, i thought I you did i don't I thought I followed you and you tweeted something recently, but I might be thinking about Facebook. People can find you on Facebook, but I don't know if you're comfortable with that. That's okay. Robert Hornack, H-O-R-N-A-K. There's not that many of them. There are a couple, and the other one looks happier than me. You're going to have to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Can't have that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any questions or anything, feel free to email me or feel free to leave a comment on this post on the website. So in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening. Robert, thank you as always for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.